Because some people are like, wait, 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 what? You're telling me I'm a Bible-believing person and that's hurting the, the kingdom of God? Why is that hurting the kingdom of God, Jeff? Because we're not a Bible-believing people. And there's the mic drop, everyone. You can, <laughs> I'm sure people are like, well, that show was good for today, Travis. What are the world are you doing? <laughs> so explain that. You got to elaborate. I'm, I'm talking about the word belief as as it's supposed to be understood. It's not intellectual assent into uh, theologically orthodox positions, but it's actually obedience to those ideas. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming and I am your host and today on our show we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Are you a Bible believing person? Chances are, if you listen to this show, you probably are. And if so, then I have a question for you. Have you ever wondered why the church in the New Testament looks so far different in the Western part of the world today? Have you ever wondered why the global church sees similar wonderful works of God that was seen in the New Testament, but we're left scratching our heads saying, why don't we see that? Many of us suffer from a holy discontent right now because what we see going on in the church today seems a far cry from what we see in the Bible or in the global church. And every time we leave, we're left with this desire for more. We want to go deeper. We want to know God more intimately. We want to take greater risks and share him with those around us. When I look at the church today, I think that the church is suffering from a kind of spiritual amnesia. Because when I look at the New Testament and I look at the global church, there's a set nature to what they're doing. There's a willingness to serve, suffer, sacrifice, and send. There is what I like to call a missionary identity that the church had that it no longer seems to have. And I'm not talking about sending missionaries. I'm not talking about that, although that's important. But I'm talking about the church in your neighborhood seems to lack this Missionary identity. What has caused this spiritual amnesia? Well, that's why I've invited our guest for today on the show. His name is Jeff Christofferson, and he has some pretty good ideas. Jeff is a pastor, a church planner, an author, and he's the executive director of the Canadian National Baptist Convention and Church Planting Canada. We have a lively, and I have to warn you, I got to put the the cones up because this is going to be a challenging discussion, and I'm giving you a word of caution. Because his unique book, Once You See Seven Temptations of the Western Church, is going to shake you. And and I mean that in a good way. (laughs) Because if you take this conversation to heart, you may not be able to go back to the way things were. Because once you see what God is doing around the world and what he wants to do in you, you don't want to go back. And by the way, we want you to see what God is doing, what he is doing around the world and what he's doing in you. It's not by accident that you've come a part of our ministry because you long to make a difference and you already are. You matter. You really do. What you are doing right now, just by listening to this show, shows that you are already making a difference. You are submitting your perspective to the Holy Spirit that God might begin to shape you and show you what he's wanting to do. And I think you may want to do more. And we want to give you that opportunity. Become one of our watering partners. Simply click the link in your show notes and be a part of what God is doing to change the world. Now, let's get to my conversation with Jeff Christofferson. Happy listening. Jeff Christopherson, welcome to Apollo's Water. It is awesome to be here with you, Travis. It really is. I am so excited to have you on the show. You really have no idea how excited I am to have you on the show, having read your stuff for years. But are you ready for the Fast Five? 
I doubt it, but let's do this anyway. Being Canadian, I have to ask a Canada question here. The best dish in Canada primarily is what? Poutine. I knew you were going to say poutine. Yeah. I knew it. Yeah. Is there a certain, okay, describe for our people that are not from Canada what poutine is. Oh, it's, it's, it's hard to describe because it's three difficult ingredients. Uh, French fries, cheese curds, and gravy. <laughs> is there a certain kind of style to poutine like i mean do people do it differently is there just kind of one thing across the board oh no no in fact there's poutineries that have over a hundred different versions of it a hundred different versions yeah. of poutineries yeah so i mean you can have everything smoke montreal smoked meat's a popular one it's there's all kinds of things you can do I actually, because I learned about poutine only like two years ago, our executive editor is married to a Canadian and he went to grad school in Canada. And so he's like, yeah, you got to try it. It's really, and it is. It's health food, really. (laughs) How in the world is poutine health food? What, you're going to need to get healthy after eating it? Is that it? You're going to have to go to the hospital? I mean, what in the world? Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, how about this one? Okay. The best thing about being Canadian is what, or what most people don't get about being Canadian is what? Uh, you've, 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 uh, probably owned your sarcasm skills. You, you have a whole different level. It's, it's our, it's our love language and, um, it's our mother tongue. <laughs> That's probably the most perfect answer I think I've ever heard. I mean, you don't even nuance it. It's sarcasm even in the answer. Okay, number three. Yeah. How about this one? If you could bring back something from 30 years ago that was popular but isn't now, what would you bring back and why? Oh, man. 30 years ago was popular. Yeah, boy. I I, I would think, like, for me, I, I would be... Uh, this is a terrible thing, but it's like the, being able to not have to check everything you say through the political correctness meter and uh, and just kind of uh, that gets a bit tiring sometimes. And so being able to just say terms and yeah, not have to not nuance have to it and explain it to everybody. Exactly. Yeah. That's actually, I think, one that many of us would <laughs> would give a wholehearted <laughs> amen to because it gets it gets exhausting after a while. Yeah. Especially. Talking to the younger generations, oh my goodness! Yeah, we're we're, we're sensitive these days. A little too sensitive. Everything is a fight. Uh, I've I've done my best to stay off Twitter. Just done my best. I recently just signed on because I think it's an argument over words. That to me is what Twitter is ninety five percent of the time. But I digress. Okay. All right. Here we go. The next question. How about this one? Because you've you've been huge in church planting, been involved in it, I mean, created organizations for it. But I think sometimes the the names of churches are kind of fun. What is the best church plant name you've ever seen and why? And you can be sarcastic here. This is where your sarcasm is fully allowed to be just let it go, brother. Let it go. Well, uh, there's a church that was started recently. I won't say where is it called the Big Up Church, and uh, <laughs> like a Korean church, but that was a direct translation. I mean, why do we choose the names of churches? <laughs> what we do, like I'm, I'm in this, I'm in Northern Florida, and there's a lot of church plants going up, and I'm like, I can't tell if it's a church plant or if it's a men's aftershave. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Longleaf pine. I'm like, okay, is that a church or what, what or, are we doing? Here? Or Greek words. Like let's, let's, let's have churches named after New Testament Koine Greek. I've seen Aletheia, Doxa. I'm just like, I'm waiting for, or, or Harmartia. <laughs> <laughs> Which for those that don't know, is the word sin. We like that <laughs> We can just say it's a Greek word. Harmartia. Welcome to a Harmartia church. <laughs> We're full on Harmartia every Sunday. <laughs> Okay, how about this one? Last one, number five, number five out of the fast five. If you were a genre of music, what genre would you be and why? Uh, I'm going with blues. Really? Okay, blues. Give us a reason why. Give us a reason why. Yeah, it's like, um, I mean, we we keep stumbling over the same thing and crying about it. And and we're not not really making much progress. We're, we're, We're actually enjoying it. 
we like our pain. And so, yeah, that'd be it. Blues. That's a perfect description. <laughs> That's a perfect description. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. Let's get into who you are a bit. So a bit of your biography, who you are, when you came to faith, some of your family story, and how you came to be a missiologist. I mean, that's just one of the many hats that you wear, but let's focus on that one. How did you get to where you're at right now? So I, I grew up in Northern Saskatchewan. And uh, so basically go to North Dakota and keep going and going and going and going and going. And uh, so my pastor was Henry Blackaby and Jack Connor, two of them. And so if you've done experience in God, you've, you've read a little bit about that. Probably most people have an exaggerated idea of what that was. And actually it was, it was a couple churches that took it at their responsibility to get the gospel out to every village, every um, every town, every city. And, um, and so people respond to the gospel all the time. Um, there was a little Bible school that was in the basement. People were trained, they were sent out and the, and on its best Sunday, Faith Baptist Church in Saskatoon was probably never more than 175 people, less than that usually. But if you look at our, the leaders across Canada, Many of them have come from that church. It was it was a very kingdom centric church. It was always sort of not saving itself, but giving itself away. And so that was a memory that was, you know, had a big impression on me. I I sensed a call into ministry as a young man, went prepared, um, went to University in Bolivar, Missouri, Southwest Baptist University, went to seminary, got an MDiv. And then I, I kind of forgot about my lineage and I saw the sexy churches that were starting and real kind of saw what, what, uh, what we were doing as, you know, old fashioned, old hat, whatever, what I'd grown up with. And so I was all over this new stuff. And so I, I planted a church in Calgary, Alberta. And in my mind, I was, I had this script. You're going to love this church. You're going to love this church. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. And I, and we planted a church that people loved. But when I began to ask for sacrifice, we're going to actually go and plant another church from us over here in this other area. Um, all of a sudden I changed the script. You're saying we're going to love this church. And you're asking me to do something I hate. This is wrong. And, and there, and so we, we created, I created a church with funky DNA. And so God used that to say, all right, remember your history, remember your lineage. And so I went actually from there to Toronto and, and we started a church this time. We had three families and we said three Christian families. We lit, we had no resourcing. We were literally, literally living in a hippie commune, 14 people and a dog in a 1300 square foot, uh, condo and we had no plans on how to get out of that because we had no financing behind us or anything but the only thing we knew that we knew is we weren't going to let christians in <laughs> and we started this church just through evangelism and uh and and i could love to tell you that whole story but that, that'll take a while but but we we started this church that we began to reach people like crazy in first for in the first 12 months we baptized 52 new believers and from a from a cold start not knowing anybody just relationships with our neighbors and 
we began to plant other churches in by the time we launched that first church we call it the sanctuary we we were actually launching two other churches simultaneously and that became the blueprint for what became a kind of a little movement and change changed my heart on a lot of things from there i uh I was asked to give leadership to our denomination for church planting. And so I was doing that in Canada in, in about 20, 2008, I started that. And at the same time, the North American Mission Board um, was rethinking what it was doing for the Southern Baptist Convention, North American Mission Board. They got a new president named Kevin Ezell and, and the, the mandate was to focus on church planting. I was asked to be a part of that. So I was leading Canada in the Northeast and then later became kind of the strategist for what we were doing and started the, the send network, which became our, the church planning idea where we built the systems for church planting. And uh, about 2015, Ed Stetzer asked me to work with him in starting something that we was first called Send Institute, later the Church Multiplication Institute, which is 72 different denominations working together as a church planting think tank and uh, what, how do we, how do we get better at church planting that actually results in planting from evangelism? So that was a uh, fun, a fun season. And um, I moved back to Canada with some personal reasons with my mom's health. We just felt like there was 10 commandments and one of them was about that kind of thing. And so mm. we, we moved back here and uh, I became the, uh, I was asked, there was an organization in Canada already running for about 30 years called Church Plant in Canada, and it's a 25 different denominations working together. And so they asked me to lead that. And then later, I'm also leading the Canadian National Baptist Convention, which is kind of Southern Baptists in Canada. So I have those two, two roles that are working. So that's the, the mini Jeff life. So we have the book, Once You See, and I've got it right here, uh, published by 100 Movements. Dog-eared and well weather. Uh, well, because I read it. <laughs> <laughs> I read it, Jeff. I can't believe how many people I talked to on the show that have written a book and people are like, they didn't read it. I, I read your book, Jeff. I, I read the book, um, took a lot of notes too. Took a lot of notes in the back, trying to make sure it was stuff I wanted to talk about, questions that I had. But first of all, let's, let's just talk about once you see Seven Temptations of the Western Church, a novel. Okay. A novel? Really? A missiologist write about writing a novel. You got some chutzpah, my friend, to write a little bit about a novel. Why a novel? And that's kind of like where angels, you know, long, fear to tread. To write on that, you're opening yourself up to huge criticism there. Why a novel? I just really sense that the ideas that we're, we were talking about blues. Remember that my favorite genre, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. the ideas that, that need to be dealt with. And I got to see them from my seat. That's not just from our network is denomination after denomination stumbling over the same thing, hamstrung by the, the same ideas and the answers are known. It's not like, Oh man, we need a new revelation. No, the answers are known. I don't know if, and if like I got to experience uh, Henry Blackaby and Jack Connor, I got to experience a kingdom centered church where most, I don't know, have, have had that. And so they haven't seen it. So I, I just thought, man, uh, writing another book on, on ideas probably isn't going to move the needle. Somehow I need to capture the hearts and minds of people so that like, I mean, if you have to unlearn something and you're going to relearn something, there's some metanoia, some repentance that has to happen in between. And the only way that that meta new mind happens is that our, our, our minds are blown with a better idea. 
we're not going to relearn. We're not going to relearn something new and and drop something old unless we really believe there's something better. And so I just wanted to give people a picture and and an emotional reaction to the truth. That's why a novel. You can't really do that any other way. You really find a backdoor in through the imagination is what you've done uh, and what I've seen. Because now, as you said, you you hang it on a story, an emotional part of it. You haven't just hit the propositional truth right you you actually hit it through story and through examples and illustrations that are just people that you're interacting with what i found very fascinating though is you talk about these seven temptations and i want to list this because i i was expecting you to address them differently than you did actually you never addressed them directly which i i was like i kept waiting i'm like where where are these seven things it keeps telling me about the seven things and i get to the back and I sort, I see you've got biblical example. And I'm like, but wait, he never actually, oh, he did. <laughs> that kind of thing. So we have the the seven temptations. Do you want to go ahead and list them for us? Or do you, yeah. you want me to do them? Yeah. I, yeah go I, ahead. I, list them. Tell us about what they are. I'll just hit the hype, you know, real quick. Philosophicalism, that's kind of the temptation of a hypothetical faith. It's like, we take biblical belief as a noun. It's something we we own. And uh, but in the New Testament, you know, it bestows always a verb. It's something we do. We don't own a belief. We do a belief. And so we spend a lot of time on this hypothetical philosophicalism. Second, professionalism, that's a temptation towards excellence. And in that, I'm speaking about the priesthood of every believer. And, it, and we're not living in limiting it to spiritual access. You know, I can pray without going to a priest, but no, God has called every believer into the min, the mission of Christ. And, uh, that, and that usually that's more than passing the offering plate. And so getting beyond professionalism, there's a temptation, the third one, what I just call presentationalism. And that is the temptation of a crowd. And that we're speaking about the body of Christ isn't a Sunday morning worship service. And when you look at the first through third centuries, uh, there was movement that happened because the understanding of the body of Christ wasn't our understanding of church. Number four, uh, I just call this word pacifism, I think, I, but it's, it's, it's not pacifism, but pacifism. And that is a temptation of comfort. And, and we have mm. personal preferences of what we want for church and we list them. My idea of a church is this or this or this or this. And very rarely are those preferences relating to Jesus' courageous search and rescue mission that he calls his church to his mission. So we have this temptation towards our, our preference and comfort. Number five, pragmatism. And that is a temptation of competition. And in that, you know, local brand advancement outranking a greater kingdom revelation that happens. And so we, we don't see our, the church beside us as our kingdom collaborator against darkness. We actually see them as competition for the market share the, of the evangelic, evangelically predisposed. And so we, we, we spend a lot of time measuring things pragmatically that have nothing to do with the assignment of Christ. And, uh, and so that's a temptation. Six, partisanism. That's a tough one. That's the temptation of Caesar. And that is secondary earthly loyalties um, getting in the way uh, over our dominant kingdom allegiance, and that is to the kingdom of God. And, and we, we do things that actually hurt the mission of Christ in our, with our allegiance to temporary uh, secondary issues. And then finally, I just call it paternalism. That's this temptation of power that we think that the Western version, what we have of church is superior to. And, and, uh, and, and we think, <laughs> I think we think that our idea of church is probably the most accurate expression of church. Meanwhile, we're losing ground here in the West every year. And around the world, the global church is in the face of persecution, is actually multiplying like crazy. I got to be at a conference just before COVID in Thessaloniki, Greece, with 85 different church planning movements from 85 different countries. And to see what God is doing around the world and then look back at us in North America and you go, uh, <laughs> 
what's wrong with us? And so this paternalism is something that I think we have to get over. So those seven things are embedded in the story. And I think it gives us a hopeful, the book gives us a hopeful picture and way out of the soup that we're in right now where we're stuck. You did a really nice job of it. For, I mean, first of all, I want to ask this question. Why seven? Is it just that you found seven? Was there more? Oh, yeah, Were there others more. that you, I mean, <laughs> I, I, yeah. give me some of the other ones that you wanted to put in there. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I don't know if I could come up with them right now, but I know I had more. Could, you couldn't find peas, could you? No, I had, had to be peas, too. I had peas, too. Oh, did yeah, you have I peas did. in yeah. there? Okay. Yeah. I, I just think like seven is enough to chew on. <laughs> it's a lot in, in seeing that. I mean, I, I was looking at the seven that you had and I've got them right in front of me right now. When you mentioned kind of that, I mean, th there are terms that I would have been like, okay, where's the, you, you have the professionalism and I've seen all of these and, and you even use kind of a phrase to describe it. When you said philosophicalism, we're a Bible believing people. Each one of them, I, I, I give a phrase that we celebrate. We have a phrase that we proudly, boldly declare. And in my opinion, they're, they're actually hurting us. They're actually hurting the mission of Christ. Go, elaborate on that. Cause some people are like, wait, 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 what? You're telling me I'm a Bible believing person and that's hurting the, the kingdom of God. Why is that hurting your kingdom of God, Jeff? Because we're not a Bible believing people. And there's the mic drop, everyone. You can, <laughs> I'm sure people are like, well, that show was good for today, Travis. What are the world are you doing? We're, if we Explain were a Bible, that. You got to elaborate. If we we're a Bible, I'm, I'm talking about the word belief as, as it's supposed to be understood. It's not intellectual assent into um, uh, theologically orthodox positions, but it's actually obedience to those ideas. And I think even, even that first one is actually actually the mother of all and the six fall under it and if we were bible believing we wouldn't be having struggles with the other six below us it's all in our hands this life of time let's give unto us all it gathers round each night each morn we watch it pass and grow. As you said, you wrote the book during the pandemic, but you also situated it post-pandemic, which I thought was very interesting. And you have one of your characters who's actually, his name is Jimmy, and he's a pastor of a mega church in Atlanta. But even he notices something in the church. And he, he writes, this is what you wrote there. I said he writes as if he's doing it and you didn't do it. But people want to get their hands dirty. This is what he noticed post-pandemic. They used to want to hire staff to do ministry, but now they want to experience some stuff themselves, but not at church. They want to serve the community, and we don't know how to do that. You said this during the pandemic, not post-pandemic, right? And you knew this was coming then. I mean, this is what I'm actually hearing people say. They don't want to just sit there. They're tired. They're frustrated. I can't tell you how many people are that I, that I said, is this all there is? Is this it? I just go on Sunday and hear great music and, and they have a worship and it's great programs and all that. Is that it? Is that all that I have? And you captured it in the middle of the pandemic, Jeff. That's pretty prophetic there. Well, so, so, so what did you, here's did you bring, the that out? bring that out? That. So, so like I, I've been working with pastors, you know, for most of my adult life and the conversation is, is frequent where, I, where I'm having an intimate honest moment with somebody they're saying jeff you know if you look at my calendar uh, everything that i do I, I there's not much of it that i need god for and the the thing that god used to call me into ministry the thing that really captured my heart that i surrendered and said yes to i i i don't even get to do those things find myself busy with all this other stuff and so when COVID came, I sensed the Holy Spirit just saying to me, because I was doing a number of webinars, kind of preparing people. We, we had one time where we had over 10,000 people on this webinar uh, when we were interviewing people from Spain and Italy about what they were experiencing before it hit us in North, in North America. And, and what, you know, what, what I just sensed the Holy Spirit saying is, this is your moment 
when else in human history have we in in and at least not human history but in recent history have we had a time to hit the pause button and say okay let's rethink what we're doing here you know that thing that you were called to do maybe let's make this as an opportunity to um to make that as a priority and so coming out of a lot of those webinars a lot of things we did we put we had a lot of pastors raise their hand and say, we want to be a part of that. We end up with 1600 pastors from different cohorts gathering together. And we found in, we had, we had some coaching cohorts. We we're working with Christ together on that. And, um, and we found that at the beginning of that process, only 25%, these are churches. If they were leaning into this conversation, listening to us, they're probably on the missional edge of things to begin with. And, but only 25% of those pastors were actually willing to make a substantial change in the midst of this. And uh, when it was all said and done, we went through that process, only 9% did. Only 9% made any kind of change. Everything, it was homeostasis as quickly as possible. Let's get back to business as usual, putting on the service and getting the people back. So that's where I began to realize, yeah. We we need a, a different way to see this. And uh, so that's one of the motivations why I wrote. Well, and you gave it the title. Once you see, <laughs> I mean, once you see all of this, it, you, you not only talk about how the church has shifted and you use this pastor kind of as an archetype for, uh, or archetype for many different pastors, but you bring out other characters that I thought were, were, were very interesting and very, each one of them made a very, Recent observation, if you will. I, I, I mean, even even going back to Jimmy for a moment, where he noticed that that the church has lost the moral high ground in our communities, and people don't see us as neutral. And I found this very interesting that you said this because there was an article that came out. It was in First Things. It was about I don't know, maybe four or five months ago. I, I could be my timeline's a little messy, but they're actually talking about Keller, and they mentioned that Keller talks about the third way. He was talking about politics. And this guy was had become a political theologian, which I didn't even know was a thing. But he said, you know, pre night, he said up to 1994, he said the culture was positive toward Christianity in the United States. 1994 to 2015, it was neutral. 2015 to now, negative. Do you agree with that type of assessment on where the culture's at? I mean, not necessarily everything in the the article because you haven't read it. I know. But just as an overarching kind of flyover, do you agree with that concept? So if, you know, I'm going to be real bold here because it's just you and me and no, no one else is listening. But um, <laughs> it, the bleed over of American evangel evangelicalism to Canada and actually the rest of the world is having, is having a corrosive effect. And it's measurable. Let me share some of the measure, how it's measured here in Canada. Um, evangelicals, uh, poor population from World War II to 2016 was bumped around 12 to 14 percent of population, 12 to 14. And so as Ca the population of Canada grew, uh, mainline denominations lost ground, evangelical denominations um, maintained market share and said 12 to 14 percent. That's to 2016. From 2016 to 2019, it went from actually 12 percent was in 2016 to 6.4 percent in 2019. In 2019 to 2021, it's down to under 5 percent, 4. I can't remember 4.8%. So it's gone from 12 percent to under 5 percent from 2016 to 2021. The what's what's the, what's the change here? If you look at um, Canadian evangelicals themselves, the, if you ask all religious groups, which um, and I, I'm 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 using Canada as the example, uh, I think probably you can you know the translations are pretty easy to make. If you ask all gr religious groups, who does who is the, has the the most positive influence on our country, the the group that thinks the highest of themselves in terms of the uh, the of, of kind of what they think others think of them, evangelicals, uh, like far and out what everybody else. So we think we do you know the the most the best. If you ask Canada wide, who is the most dangerous? to society, Canada wide says evangelicals more than Muslims, more than, than any other group, evangelicals. And, and so, yeah, so the moral high ground, we don't have it. 
And uh, there's lots of reasons for it. And, and I would spend too long in this conversation doing that, but we don't have it. And so I think at this moment, um, we're, we're, we're going to have to sort of adopt a posture if we're going to be effective, adopt a posture of where the, the global church is, where they don't have it either. They're considered the scum of the earth, dogs, everything else. And yet they're winning people to Christ like crazy. It, it's, it's no longer a demand our rights. that's going to get us, get us to where we need to go. It isn't going to be any kind of political um, movement that is going to change the hearts and minds of the mission field. It's actually becoming what Christ has asked us to become in the very first place. And that's a slow burn. That's a slow cook. We can't do that overnight. It is actually, but it's, it's amazing what 12, 12 unschooled, uneducated people did three cent by three centuries later. That's where we well, are. I, I, I am in full agreement. And we've talked a great deal on this show about the moral rot that's been within the church, whether it's the, you know, the, the, the variety of different scandals, the, um, that have just been brushed under the the carpet, if you will. Even I know I had Todd Johnson on from the Center of the Study of Global Christianity, and we were talking about corruption, even just financially giving with missions, um, and then the preoccupation with the celebrity culture and the professionalism in church, where we we're not kingdom centric. We're about image. We're about brand. We're about showing off who we are in our very media hyped world. And yet, I see so many different Christians saying, "Okay, there's a problem. There's a problem. There's a problem." And some agree with the diagnosis of the problem. What they disagree with is the solution. And there are very, very different solutions going forward. I think, as you, you've you already alluded to, that the early church, they were outsiders, and the global church feels that way too. I know we've talked to British evangelicals like David Bevington, and he said, you know, you have cultural power, we do not. And we haven't had it for some time. Um, we don't very We don't do well when we have power. And yet, we're in a democratic uh, a democratic republic or a democratic society, very secularist. And I'm noticing this, um, a split that's starting to occur where some Christians are saying, okay, the civilization that we are beneficiaries of in large measure traces its history, at least its found moral foundation to what the word of God brought to the surface, equality, justice, freedom, all of these things are, are a product of that. And then combined with enlightenment ideas, this is where we're at. So I've seen very different solutions. Some say, let's withdraw from society for a time, a concentrated time, let society just do its own thing and collapse on itself. And then the church comes in to rescue. Others are saying, no, we do want to withdraw maybe from the educational system and we want to be able to educate our children again. We need to disciple, disciple our families. And you actually allude to that a little bit in the book. Everyone agrees there's a problem. Although in some of these larger churches that you allude to, they go, what problem are you talking about? We've got full seats, full program, everything's going great. However, as a good friend of mine, Charlie Davis, who used to run team, says, the church is like a 747 in the sky, the North American church. And it's run out of gas, but it doesn't know it yet. How do you, how would you, I mean, what do you have to say to that? Is that a yes or is that a no? What else do we have to think about with these issues? Because there's so many of them. Where I find, I think, most troubling is is uh, where a lot of us go for the answer we 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 go back a century or two or three or uh, four or five and um and we we go back to um christendom we'll say we'll go back to the reformation Reformation. and say all right there's our there's our, our our high water mark there's where we 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 need to sort of get back to that kind of thinking and um and I would, you know, very much disagree with that sentiment. I, I don't see the Reformation as the, you know, the high point of Christian history. I see it as the beginning fixes of the low point of Christian history. Mm-hmm. And um, what what was going on then, and even this is is Christendom, as you said. They didn't really, you don't find the reformers talking about mission much because there was a common, there was a common mission and they were sort of arguments on sort of versions of it. But we go back to that, which was really still just, a, 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 you know, a, the third, the, the, by 313, Constantine began to say, you know, if I can't whip them, I'm going to join them mm-hmm. kind of thing. You know, we we sort of turned the movement into into sort of a sterile 
machine that uh, we continue to sort of work today. And so if you, you, you see that the average person, when they think of church, we think we're over it. We think of, you know, the church is a building, but you know, most people are there in not one way. What time's church? You know, it's a place you're going to meet or where's your church? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's that I, all the time that I read Romans 16 and I see Paul um, saying, greet so-and-so and greet so-and-so and greet so-and-so and greet. And he's never been to Rome and yet he knows the players in Rome. What, what's going on there? It's like, it's like the, the church through persecution was mobile. It was a movement. It was, it was a training people. It was, it was, and, uh, and it wasn't seen as a worship service. A, and so I don't know of too many people that are just in their, in their, in their instinctive thinking that do not equate church as worship service. And until we can get over that, I don't know how we, we move. And so you have to, you know, I, I use this thing. Once you see something here, you can't ever comfortably live here anymore. And, uh, and if you've experienced this, um, for those of you who are listening to the audio, I'm sorry, I just did some hand gestures. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> until you've experienced that, you know, all of a sudden going back under here just seems like such a cheap sham. And so we can do all kinds of glitz and bright lights and whatever to somehow keep the machinery moving a little bit longer, pour the last little bit of gas in the thing. But uh, you just look at all the measurements of where where things are going here. Um, You know, sure, we have some more larger churches, but we have way less people in church. You actually mentioned this. Let me introduce one of the characters. You have a character named Luca who is really pained by uh, he's got church hurt. Really, I mean, if if people want to put a a contemporary label on it, he's a pastor's son who literally watched his dad die to the stress inflicted from his church, even though his dad had presented a kingdom-centric vision to a church that had a, what kind of vision would you call that? Philosophicalism? Um, I mean, just a, I I don't know what it is. The whole list almost. They have this, they're kind of this backwards church in Philadelphia, um, representative of so many churches that I've, I've seen. You did a really good job of, of just capturing that. And I had a conversation yesterday with a pastor friend who pretty much described the church he came from as the church that this, this uh, Luca's father, uh, I think his name was Josiah, Dr. Josiah Lewis is uh, yeah. memory. Um, yeah. Josiah yeah. Lewis had pastored an African-American man in the inner city of Philadelphia. And he presents this kind of kingdom centric idea of church. The church rejects it. He, it pretty much, he keeps, serving these people because he loves them, but just causes so much stress and he dies of a heart attack. If I gather right in his Oldsmobile, his son is bitter and his son though, still though, still believes in God, which I, I thought was also a good thing to capture. He didn't deconstruct. He's hurt, but rather than using that as an opportunity to deconstruct, it uses that opportunity to create something different because he didn't like the ministry message and really the church narcissism, if you will, uh, at the core of everything and proposes a different kind of church leadership. And you use him to write this. He says, we must shift from professional leaders designed to produce a worship service to co-vocational leaders deployed to equip disciple making disciples, something that's infinitely reproducible. Elaborate on that. I mean, you've already done that a bit, but bring it out a little bit further so we can get a taste of it. What, what you see going on around the world right now, you don't see people making a living from church often. Um, there, there are some outliers, but where you see the movements, that's not what's, what's going on here. Like when we're, when we're thinking about, you know, planting a church, we're usually thinking about a, a solo planter or a small team, each at some point making a living from it. And um and I think where we have to get, go is like, even when the first and second great awakenings came, there was movement happened and farmers and shopkeepers didn't stop becoming farmers and shopkeepers. But, but this professionalism has, has sort of taken over. And now our only imagination is a 
is a vocational pastor. And if we are bivocational, we are kind of got the booby prize. We didn't, we're not really, the, you know, the, the real deal. And so actually in 2015, I'd invent a word called co-vocational, co meaning calm, Latin meaning with, uh, I have two callings. God has called me to the workforce and God has called me to his church in leadership. And these are two holy callings and God wants to use both of them in my life. And when we begin to think of church, not as worship service, but church as in mission of Christ, and you begin to think, like, what, what, who was Jesus and how did he sort of shape his functions and priorities and think about, okay, how could we as a co-vocational team work full-time in the marketplace, not leave our places of credibility and influence and actually bring the gospel there and then, um, you know, and just actually do the thing we're really good at and invest our, our energies in those things. Um, it, it really just opens our imagination to possibilities. And then when we think about less resources and actually I led uh, the send network, which, you know, is the biggest church planting idea that there is and maybe has ever been. And resources weren't the limiting factor. <laughs> we had resources. The limiting factor ha has always been the manpower. And less and less people, I think, are have an imagination or a desire to do what their imagination says a, a pastor is or a church planter is, which is this this separate thing. And uh, and so I think we just need to normalize back to what the rest of the world understands and what we used to understand is a co-vocational idea as the normal. We still need, if I want to use these terms, we need, we need an army of priests. We still need some bishops. We still, <laughs> we still need some people that um, have a, you know, oh, a theological broad understanding and they know Greek and Hebrew and they can smell something that, you know, okay, that's antinomianism. We don't want to talk about that. You know? But, but that doesn't need to be everybody. And we, and if we're going to see a, some kind of a broad movement, then, then this deprofessionalizing and the raising up of, of normal everyday disciples and giving them significant places within the body of Christ. Uh, and then bec it becomes a reproducible idea. And um, I'm excited about that idea. Seven temptations of the Western church. Here they are. Number one, philosophicalism. That's the temptation to a hypothetical faith, one that makes faith a noun, not a verb. Two, professionalism. The temptation towards excellence in all things. Make sure you write these down if you haven't already. Number three, presentationalism. The temptation of the crowd, everything for the Sunday morning experience or event, and then nothing else besides that. Passivism, the temptation to comfort. Number five, pragmatism, the temptation of competition, building a brand for our church as opposed to the other churches around. Partisanism, the temptation of Caesar, secondary earthly loyalties before kingdom. Seven, paternalism, the temptation of power. Ours is the best, most accurate vision of church and kingdom, even though we are dying and the rest of the world does not seem to be. Wow, that really does hit home, doesn't it? And I love the way that Jeff addressed these issues, not straight on, but through a story. And that's not always easy to do. Both as Malcolm Guide and Karen Swallow Pryor have shown us, sometimes we need to use our imagination to catch the truth of a thing. Or think of J.R.R. Tolkien in The Lord of the Rings or C.S. Lewis with The Chronicles of Narnia. They open up our mind to see who God is in a different way. Someone, I can't remember who, said, tell it slant. The idea is, is that when things catch you at an unexpected angle, you have to stop and consider in ways that you don't when things come at you head on. It's why Jesus told parables like the Good Samaritan. Samaritans were the enemy. Impure. They were half-breeds. The priests and the Levites were the pure ones. In the story, they were upholding the ceremonial law but missing the point because that's what stories do. Obviously, we barely scratched the surface of the seven temptations in this first part of our conversation. Honestly, we only got to the first couple. But I was really struck by a couple of things from this part. Things that I think have a significant far-reaching implication for the future of the Western church. First of all, sensing that there is a problem, we need to do things differently is not just enough. 
Jeff talked about lots of interest post-COVID, but only 9% follow through. And that's of the people who were interested in change. That really speaks to temptation number one. Next, I was also struck by his statement about the Reformation, how people, really well-meaning people, speak of getting back there. But that can actually be a trap because the Reformation is not the high point of Christian history. It's the simple beginning of the fixes of the low point of Christian history. I'll be honest, I probably wouldn't have thought of the Reformation in those terms, and I know that jars a few of you out there, but I do think he's right, and I would encourage you to consider that. People hear things like that and get nervous, and I totally get it. We are committed to orthodoxy at Apollos Watered, completely. And that is a problem for many in today's culture. However, it's our structures and organization, what we do is largely tied to those ideas, and as our conversation with Karen Swallow Pryor said, to Victorian-era ideas. Maybe, just maybe, we need a reformation of orthopraxy or relationship, how we go about this, how we actually love people. Or as Michael Hendricks said when we talked to him, a relational reformation. Which leads to the final thing that really struck out to me in this part of the conversation. It's the part about professionalism about co-vocational work for pastors. Yes, we need people to teach and organize. Jeff heads up two significant Christian ministries. And I know of a pastor of a large church who is what we have often called bivocational on purpose. And I've actually encouraged other churches to do the same, but they're scared. And I understand because I've been there. But I know that watching bivocational pastors, it actually makes them better because he knows what his people go through and the church around the world knows this too. Most places require bivocational or co-vocational work. Perhaps that will have to become the norm and perhaps that will be better for the church. It's something that we really need to think about. This was an unsettling conversation in the best sense of the word. It stirred things up and I do believe that his book is one of the most dangerous books that I've read in some time. The book really did jar my thinking and my imagination. And as you can tell, there's a whole lot more to talk about. In fact, it's about to get really good and challenging. Very, very challenging. And I'm warning you now, but that's for next time. Please don't hesitate to drop us a line about this conversation or any of our other conversations. We want to hear from you. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel where you can see this conversation and any of our other conversations. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on